Thank you for coming to today's meeting on emotion. I'm Edna Sessin, director of the center. Uh, just to tell you the next two programs we have, on uh, October 25th, we have permanence and impermanence of mathematical concepts and on, organized by Michael Harrison. And on uh, November 11th, we have planetary intelligence organized by David Greenspoon. Uh, Dr. Jared Horowitz, who is the co-director, the associate director of the center, will uh, introduce the panelists. Thank you, Ed. Welcome, everyone. I'm going to run through the quick bios of all of our esteemed uh, panelists today. If you would uh, just raise your hand when I mention your name. Uh, Mabel Berezin is Distinguished Professor of Arts and Sciences and Sociology and Director of the Institute for European Studies at the Inadi Center for International Studies at Cornell University. She writes on challenges to democratic cohesion and solidarity in Europe and the US. Berezin is the author of multiple articles on historical and contemporary right politics in Europe. Her books include Illiberal Politics in Neoliberal Times, Culture, Security, and Populism in the New Europe, and Making the Fascist Self, the Political Culture of Interwar Italy. She is working on a manuscript, The End of Security and the Rise of Populism, under contract at Oxford University Press that examines the current global resurgence of nationalism and the populist challenge to democratic practice. Catherine Elkins is Professor of Humanities and Faculty in Computing at Kenyon College, where she teaches in the Integrated Program in Humane Studies. She writes about the age-old conversation between philosophy and literature, as well as the more recent conversation about AI, language, and art. Recent books include The Shapes of Stories with Cambridge University Press, which explores the emotional arc underlying narrative, in addition to articles on authors ranging from Plato and Sappho to Wolf and Kafka, her latest research explores AI ethics and explainability in large language models like GPT-4. She consults on AI regulation and fairness and can also be heard talking about new developments in AI on podcasts like Radio AI and streaming networks like AI Jazeera. Rob Hopkins is a philosopher at New York University who works mostly in the philosophy of mind and aesthetics. He's recently finished a book, The Profile of Imagining, forthcoming at Oxford University Press, on the sensory imagination, relating it to other forms of imagining, to perception and to episodic memory. Previously, he's published on pictorial representation and picture perception on other topics central to the philosophy of the visual arts, including the aesthetics of sculpture, photography, painting and film, and on the epistemology and metaphysical status of aesthetics and moral judgment. Before NYU, Rob taught at the University of Sheffield and the University of Birmingham. He has been, he has been honorary secretary of the Mind Association, president of the European Society for Aesthetics, and a trustee of the American Society for Aesthetics. Rosalind Picard is a founder and director of the Effective Computing Research Group at the MIT Media Laboratory, co-founder and chief scientist at Empatica, providing FDA-cleared biomarkers, including the first smartwatch to detect seizures, 
and co-founder of Affectiva, providing software for technology with emotional intelligence. An author of over 350 peer-reviewed articles in AI and digital health, effective computing, machine learning, and human-computer interaction, she is best known for her book, Effective Computing, which helped launch the field by that name. She is a popular speaker and storyteller with TED Talk, with a TED Talk of more than two million views. Picard has received many honors, including membership within the National Academy of Engineering and the National Academy of Inventors, and election to the status of fellow for the IEEE, ACM, AAAC, and the APA. Joseph Ledoux is the Henry and Luce Moses Professor of Science at NYU in the Center for Neural Science. He also directs the Emotional Brain at NYU and is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and a Development, and I'm sorry, the Department of Psychiatry and Development of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at NYU Langone Medical School. His work is focused on the brain me mechanisms of memory and emotion. Ledoux is the author of The Emotional Brain, Synaptic Self, and Anxious. The latter received the American Psychological Association William James Book Award. Ledoux has also written about the brain for the New York Times and Huffington Post. He has received a number of awards, including the Carl Spencer Lashley Award for the American, from the American Philosophical Association, the Fraser International Prize in Cognitive Science, Jean Louis Signoret Prize of the Ibsen Foundation, the Santiago Dris Grisolia Prize, the American Psychological Association, and I'm going to stop there, and so on and so on. Thank you all so much for your attention, and uh, looking forward to a very stimulating talk. us at, at Helix and the executive committee of Helix, we welcome you. This is really a sort of landmark roundtable because until the 1990s, you never would have collected persons who were speaking about emotion in politics, emotion philosophy, emotion in literature, emotion in, and the brain as you have, and you emotion in that whole world of computing and engineering. So it was only in the late 1990s that emotion was taken as more than the sweat of the body. And really serious research began. And I'd love to know your thoughts about why and how that happened. And then after this, I'm not going to say too much. You will carry on. It was almost as if it was a post-Cartesian recovery movement. You want us to just... Jump in? Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, I can say something about uh, that. So when I got started, um, I did my PhD studying split-brain patients and got interested in emotion and consciousness through them and decided to start studying rats because there were no good techniques for studying the human brain after I graduated. So I spent many years uh, studying Pavlovian fear conditioning in rats. It's a very trivial kind of procedure. But I thought it was useful because the, thing, the way rats respond to danger and the way we respond to danger is very similar, even though their experiences are probably very different. So I, I thought at least for the behavioral stuff, I could study rats. Um, and so I wrote a grant to do this, and I called it the Neural Mechanisms of Emotional Conditioning. And the grant was rejected, solid, not even scored, uh, because neuroscientists don't study emotions. Yes. And so I, what I had to do was start masquerading as a Pavlovian conditioning researcher <laughs> in order to get my work done. 
And I did that for a long time, and I actually got seduced into the field. Um, I was hired at NYU uh, to be a, a professor in 1989. Um, but at that point, I couldn't really, there was nothing I could do in terms of emotion, really. I had to masquerade again as a, a conditioning person to make it fit in with the kind of mathematical approach that the people at NYU basically took. I was hired as, they were afraid that the Center for Neuroscience would become a visual neuroscience center, and I was hired as somebody who would not be a visual neuroscientist. So that's, that's how I got started in there, and it was a, you know, it was a tough uh, going for a long time. Um, and not to, you know, I don't want to like say it's all my fault, but uh, <laughs> there were books by Antonio Damasio and me that came out in around the same time in the mid-1990s. And it's been said that those two books kind of helped launch popular but also scientific interest in the topic. And as you said, in the 1990s, late 1990s, things began to pick up. Mm -hmm. But I want to mention one other book, uh, which you wouldn't necessarily throw into the same category. It was Daniel Goleman's Emotional Intelligence. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. Because in 1989, right before, the week before I arrived at NYU for my job, uh, Goleman wrote an article about my work in the New York Times called uh, Brain's Design Emerges as a, um, a Key to Emotion. And it was all about how I discovered a subcortical pathway uh, sensory pathway to the amygdala that would allow the animal to, or a human, to respond to danger before they knew what it was they were responding to. And a lot of psychoanalysts got very interested in that as well because it was a kind of a, a validation of an unconscious processing system. Mm -hmm. So that was my introduction to NYU. The deans loved it because, you know, before I got there, I was, you know, introduced by the New York Times. <laughs> My colleagues didn't like it so much, though, because they thought emotion was, was just this messy stuff. You don't want to study that. But anyway, I'll stop there. But anyway, so Goldman's book, um, a lot of his book was based, the initial part, the foundation, was based on all of my research. And so I think that without me, Goldman wouldn't have done what he did. And without Goldman, I wouldn't have done what I did. Does he know that? Uh, I think I've told him that. Yeah. <laughs> At least my part, I don't know. Was he happy to hear? Uh, I, I don't know, it was a long time ago. <laughs> it, it's funny, if you hadn't uh, spoken first, I was going to say just a two-sentence intro, which is that it was his book and Dan's and uh, Tony's that made it respectable from a neuroscience and mm -hmm. you know, an argument that this wasn't just total uh, craziness. That really helped me too. I, w I leaned heavily on their work when I started mm -hmm. arguing that emotion was actually a valuable kind of a thing to give an intelligence system, not just something that would make uh, computers more stupid and, mm -hmm. and irrational. Well, that partly was because they had to recognize emotion made human beings more intelligent too. Right, right order. Yeah, but, but at the time in computer science, people thought that you know, among engineers, there were sort of two camps. There were the ones who came up to me and said, Ross, what is an emotion? I, I don't think I have emotions. <laughs> um, like, like, you know, like, I mean, I know sometimes I see people get really extreme, but they thought that they didn't have feelings um, like other people. And I'm not just trying to be funny. I mean, there are a lot of people mm -hmm. I work with who are very alexithymic and really just thought this was so irrelevant that it was just noise. They would look at my feet, usually in the conversation, and tell me that 
emotion is just noise, and why are you um, paying any attention to it? Mm. We, we would joke that the engineers who look at your feet are the extroverted engineers. Um, and then there were the others who really got emotion, but thought that it was really only present in an irrational way, and that it would be the last thing you would want to give an intelligent machine. The perspective from philosophy is interestingly different, I think, because the emotions have been central through the history of the discipline, mm -hmm. and people have railed against them or been in favor of them. But there has been, uh, and I guess in the, say, the 60s, philosophers are beginning to think, well, well, the mind must ultimately be dependent on the brain, and any aspect of the mind must find its roots somehow in brain function. So in a way, we'd expect brain people to be doing this. But there was a move that's somewhat analogous to this, which is that the idea that emotions were fundamentally irrational and played no part in a rich, rational life began to be questioned in moral philosophy about the same time. So they've come to recognize the moral emotions that were being come to recognized as something significant and helpful to living a good life rather than just an obstacle to it. If you look at someone like Spinoza, he thought the root of human happiness involved transcending all your emotions. Someone like Bernard Williams, to take a smaller but more recent figure, would have thought you can't live a proper moral life. You can't even know the moral truths without some kind of emotion engagement with it all. So that's, it's not the same thing, but it's, it shows an emotion beginning to be treated seriously in ways it wasn't before. So. I think in the field of literary studies, there's something called affect theory, but it's been very interesting for me to see that that notion of affect theory is entirely different from what we talk about when we talk about effective AI. Um, and my first work in the field was coming to study the shapes of stories using computational methods. What was surprising is that for thousands of years, we've known that stories have shapes, but we thought that they were likely based on plot or causality and action. And so everybody was trying to model that, and it turns out that that's quite difficult to model that kind of causality, but modeling the sentiment of language has proven quite easy. And so uh, my collaborator, John, who's in the audience and I, worked uh, using the same method as people earlier than us to model these shapes of stories, and it actually is the language sentiment that has the underlying shape. I would say that literary scholars in general um, are not excited about this because when they talk about affect, they want to talk about what is non-quantifiable. And in fact, what we have found is that we can quantify sentiment and that that is showing a structure. And there are also questions about whether um, everybody has different emotional experiences, and what does it mean if all stories share these kinds of similar shapes? So I would say that, um, and also, if you talk about emotion as a literary scholar, you're somehow not serious. So we have to remove our emotion from our analysis of literary scholarship if we're going to be uh, good scholars. But actually, I, I think we have not reckoned with the extent to which narrative works because it uses emotion. I'm actually thinking of this historically, and, and I was thinking that it was indeed in the late 90s when I actually started to write about it. But an emotion is something that is, is sort of um, antithetical to a lot of social science analysis. And the first time I started thinking about it, I was writing a chapter of my book, maybe The Fascist Self, and I... I you know, I sort of had the narrative out there, and then I said, well, I should call this chapter, or the section of the chapter, the iconography of emotion. 
And then all of a sudden I said, no, 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 I can't write that because I'm a social scientist and nobody's going to read that. A little bit about the going to the lab. And, and I did it anyway in the end because I thought it actually described what I was trying to describe. And I'm not actually talking now about people in, you know, in piazzas having big rallies and things like that. I'm talking about the kinds of, of um, objects and narratives that were actually being used around those rallies. And I decided that they were ways to create emotional space. Um, that was sort of in the mid-90s, but as the, you know, as, as the decade was coming to its end, people started to ask me to write about, independently about emotion and politics and that sort of thing. And I did begin doing that around the subject of nationalism, and that's where a lot of that had actually, was beginning to take place in social science. Um, there had been a, a sort of, um, there are social psychologists in social science, of which I am not one, but the, the, the extent to which those people were dealing with emotions was actually to categorize them. In other words, to say, yes, they're there, but what are they? So there's a lot of debate about how do you describe things, but not really a lot of debate about how these things work, how they're evolved, and that kind of thing. Um, the last thing I'll just say in this segment of my comments is that I wrote this piece on politics and emotion, stopped, but not for very long. I read your book, I read Damasio's book, and then someone asked me to write about economics and emotion, in part because at that point, rational choice theory was very big in political science, and in, um, well, obviously economics is supposed to be rational. And that was led me into, and what I found actually, that it was in the economics literature that there was much more discussion of what was rational, what wasn't rational, and maybe economics wasn't as rational as Ec 101 makes us think. So um, that's my momentary contribution. <laughs> so there, in neuroscience, there are at least kind of three perspectives on emotions. One is uh, the kind of Darwinian basic emotions approach. It says that emotions are hardwired states that are automatically triggered by external stimuli. And that, for example, the area of the brain I've worked so much on, the amygdala, is known as the seat of fear because a threat in the outside world will activate the amygdala and cause an animal or a person to uh, respond. And it's assumed that it's because the feeling of fear is encoded in the amygdala that the animal or person responds. And that leads to the idea that human emotions can be understood in terms of, human emotional feelings can be understood in terms of animal feelings. And you know, um, Jacques Panksepp, who many people here may know, or know of, uh, he's uh, passed away. He and I had long, many long debates about all of this because um, even though I was so associated with the amygdala fear center idea, for me, it was an implicit unconscious processor, not a source of a conscious feeling. Conscious feelings are cognitive interpretations that we have of situations we find ourselves in. This is something I you know, learned through split brain patients that when the patient is behaving in a way um, that the left hemisphere doesn't know about because the right hemisphere generated the behavior, the left hemisphere makes up a story, a narrative to make its behavior, make the, its body's behavior make sense. And that's, that's the, when I talk about emotion, that's what I'm talking about. These narratives that we generate in terms of uh, conscious feelings that are constructed as experiences based on schema that we acquire as we grow up in life, but also that we acquire as being part of a culture. So I would say that every person's 
understanding of fear is completely different, not completely, but somewhat different, because we've all had different kinds of experiences with danger that we come to think of as what fear is. But within cultures, there's also going to be a difference. So we learn our fear within the cultural context of what we understand fear to be, or any other emotion. Um, so I think emotion, even though we can translate the word fear across most languages around the world, um, that's sometimes led to the idea that, um, uh, that, that everyone experiences the same thing, that fear is universal. But what I'd say is universal is danger, because every culture has to have some way of accounting for danger and talking about it, and so they give it that word. But just because you can translate that word across cultures doesn't mean the experience of everyone in different cultures is going to be the same. We know there's a tremendous amount of cultural variability in emotions. Too. So that's the, the second kind of um, uh, emotion theory, more of a cognitive one. Lisa Feldman Barrett has a similar proposal. Not exactly the same, but close enough. Uh, and then the third kind <clears throat> is the leftover, <clears throat> excuse me, the leftover from behaviorism which is still in many ways alive and well in psychology and neuroscience. Um, when I had started talking about fear not being uh, a product of the amygdala, and so there were two groups that didn't like that, the Panksepp group and also the behaviorist group, because the, these neo-behaviorists who had been trained by you know, the, the group of the original behaviors, and they were, these were young people, like I was young at the time. Um, and their understanding of fear was that fear is not a subjective experience, it's a relation between a stimulus and a response. So uh, in the 1950s, the idea of these kind of intervening variables, these latent states of fear, are what connect the stimulus and the response, and those became physiological states of the amygdala for for fear, or of the hypothalamus for hunger, and so forth. But these are not subjective experiences. So when I started saying, well, it's confusing for us to call what a rat is doing when it's freezing, fear. If we, call, if we use the, the brain state of fear to cause that, then everybody else besides those in the node begins to think we're talking about conscious fear. Um, but they said, no, we can't change it. Uh, what, what everybody thinks is irrelevant. It's just quaint you know, psychology, uh, folk psychology, and we're not going to change it. Um, so they, they were de completely dedicated to the old behaviorist logic, and they still are. Uh, one person wrote um, that, uh, I wrote an article with the psychiatrist Danny Pine about this called the two-system uh, two theory of fear and anxiety. And he wrote, this is Michael Fanslow at UCLA, uh, Ledoux and Pine are going to send uh, psychiatry back to the Dark Ages. By the Dark Ages, of course, they met Freud, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> because of, of subjectivity. So we can't have any subjectivity. So, you know, of course, that not everything Freud said was perfect, right? And many, many people have many objections to a lot of that stuff that Freud said. But the fact that they threw the baby out with the bathwater when they started doing psychopharmaceutical research using animals to find things that are going to change the subjective experience of people it doesn't work. And it's been a complete failure uh, in terms of um, uh, medications. So, but, you know, it should have been understood that it was never going to work. You can't change the content of a human subjective state by giving the, the person a pill that's going to be digested, go throughout the body, find its way to the brain, you know, find the amygdala, 
turn off the amygdala and then everything's going to be great. That's just not going to work. I mean, I think it's useful. You have to turn off the amygdala in a sense to um, take care of, of physiological arousal, hyperarousal and avoidance and uh, overreactivity to threats and all of that stuff. But uh, once you've done that, then you, the brain might be better prepared for psychotherapy because the arousal and all those other things would be muted to some extent. But anyway, I'll stop there. Well, well, you're talking about a, a crucial distinction between mood and emotion, affect, feeling. Those are all on a spectrum, and you can't apply what works for one, right. one spectrum, so to speak, to the others. And so it's very sad people come into therapy wanting to change sadness with a pill. And that's very different than coming in for an antidepressant. And, you know, everything that you're all saying really is pointing to how important it is to differentiate exactly. You mentioned it in terms of what's the affect at a a rally and then how you respond to each. I I wonder, too, if there are, I mean, when Yuck would... you probably conversed with them more about this than I did, but thinking about the rodents, um, the mouse models and so forth, having feelings, he said that they would shut down his animal lab at one point. He told me that if he said that they had feelings. So he was really upsetting a lot of people by uh, using the emotion language around the animals. And you can imagine how important these animal labs are for so much medical research and so forth. Mm -hmm. So um, I know even to this day, the animal labs are not only very carefully regulated by lots of ethical principles that we all want to see, but a lot lot of them are kind of uh, very um, nondescript, right? You won't see signs outside on the street, you know, saying animal lab, because so many people would be upset uh, if they believe the animals have feelings and there's um, the research that people are doing on them happening. So yeah, I mean, um, you know, Yach and I debated quite a bit about all this. And after he died, or close to the time around he was dying, I figured something out, um, which is that, you know, if, I, if you carefully read what he's saying, he's, he's talking about, at least in some of his later writing, he was talking about three kinds of consciousness uh, based on Indel Tolving's three-part distinction. Mm-hmm of autonoetic consciousness based on episodic memory that, that you're interested in, um, noetic consciousness based on semantic memory, and anoetic consciousness based on procedural memory. Now, I, I couldn't get my head around how that could possibly, the third one could possibly exist. Procedural memory is supposed to be unconscious. So how can you have unconscious consciousness? And Yach, in, in his book, um, affective neuroscience, said that these primal emotions that other animals have are almost unconscious. They're at the fringe of consciousness. But in his public talks, he often talked about rats and people having similar kinds of emotions. Um, so it was a conflict that he was struggling with mm-hmm. and you know, digging his heels in to defend it. So eventually, you know, at some point, I had also become very fascinated with Tolving's three-part partition. I didn't know that Yach had done that. So kind of around the, maybe Yach did it first, but somehow I, I was doing it more from the cognitive end than the more basic end. And so what it all turns out to be, our disagreement was about anoetic consciousness. What is it? And 
is the amygdala the source of that anoetic consciousness, or does that have to be cognitively re-represented in order to be experienced? So, I, I don't want to go on too long. So this could take forever. Let me just quickly say what it, what anoetic consciousness is. It's you walk into your apartment and you see books displayed, fallen off the shelf or something. So let me start. You walk into your apartment and you, you know it's your apartment without you having to say, this is my apartment or this is my thought or anything like that. Um, but if you walk in and there are books that are scattered that you didn't do, then all of a sudden you have this s- sensation, this feeling that comes up, this feeling of th- that things are not right. You know, you know, when things are right, the feeling of rightness, you don't have to question it. You don't have to think about it. It's just there. But when something bumps up to the next level, so the, that anoetic state now is into noetic consciousness, you semantically know that something is wrong, and then you autonoetically become afraid and, and tense about it and subjectively experiencing it in a, in a true way as an emotion. So our only difference was, is anoetic consciousness in the amygdala, or is the amygdala a first-order state that has to be cognitively re-represented? That's the whole thing. I mean, some of the authors that I write about, Proust and Wolf and Wordsworth, they often talk about an experience that they have not interpreted yet. Right. That there's something that seems to almost call out to them, right. like the universe speaks. And then they spend quite a bit of time thinking about and narrating mm-hmm. what it must mean. It yeah, seems tip like of the tongue and the you tongue. Know, gut feeling, all these things. And the narration sometimes almost seems wrong or false. Uh, but the feeling seems right. So I, I'm curious about these animals feeling because, um, you know, it seems to me this conversation about constructedness, I get this a lot when I talk about the shapes of stories. How can you say that stories have shapes because everybody has different emotional experience and we all construct it differently? What does it mean that so many stories across different cultures, different time periods seem to exhibit the same shapes? And this constructedness is something that people are always saying to me. And it seems really problematic that there would be anything shared. But it strikes me that what you're suggesting is it's the interpretation of it as an emotion that is the constructedness, but there's something underlying it that seems to be shared. So that when I can read somebody, an author, a poem, I know somehow what that feeling is, Mm -hmm. right? But what does it mean if an animal has feelings, then it means that the animal, you know, might have an interpretation. Is, is the feeling that interpretation of it? And is the problem then that we're saying that animals too are interpreting experience? I mean, I'm curious, because you talked about that as being dangerous somehow, or a problem to talk about. Can I ask the follow-up to that? Yes. And because to what extent then are emotions precognitive? I think that's what you were saying. I yeah. Think that's... Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, I struggled with animal emotion for a long time because I had come to it from the point of view of higher cognition. And I couldn't see how without higher cognition you could have, animals could have what I was calling emotions at the time. But with the Tolving thing, I was able to begin to think about layers of evolution. Mm-hmm. So autonoetic consciousness, let's just for the sake of argument say that autonoetic consciousness is a unique human thing that other, other animals, maybe you know, some primates might have it, but in general it's kind of a higher primate thing. 
uh, the ability to be aware of yourself as the entity having an experience. And let's say, for the sake of argument, that this is dependent upon what's called the frontal pole. This is a region of the prefrontal cortex that is only in the human brain, not even in other primates. Other primates have a version of it, but it's, it's not the same. Um, so what, what I proposed in an article a couple of years ago is that you know, if we knew more about noetic, anoetic, and autonoetic consciousness in the human brain, we could then, and, and had some confidence that the brain circuits that, that are involved in those are understood, we could then ask, does a monkey have that same circuit for, let's say, noetic consciousness, semantic awareness? And the answer would probably be uh, yes, because a lot of what we talk about in terms of just factual knowledge requires that information be retrieved from memory, from long-term memory, and put into the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex working memory circuits, and then that becomes a template for an experience based on that. Um, so that would be a kind of primate-wide consciousness. But what about other mammals? And this is totally consistent with the uh, Then we would be talking about anoetic consciousness, where there's no real content it's more that kind of raw feeling, as Jacques would often say, these raw, raw affects um, that the animal can have in the presence of a, a, um, a sexual partner or in the presence of food or in the presence of danger, just the rawness and to know that this is useful or bad in the sense of, of being able to behave in the proper way, but without having a lot of complex content and cognition associated with it. So that, to me, that helps me understand uh, a lot about how, what, what goes on in the minds of animals. It might be wrong, but for me, it, it's a comfort, comfort zone for uh, partitioning all that, that stuff out. It gets very close to instinct, doesn't it, what you're talking about? How do we di differentiate in philosophy, for instance? Where does instinct come in? Well, I don't know about instinct, but there is a distinction I'd like to know what people think of to introduce here between a current and non-occurrent mental states of all kinds. Well, so said again. Occurrent or non-occurrent. So an occurrent episode has got to be just that, an episode that's datable and has a certain duration and a certain intensity. And all the conscious stuff that everyone's been talking about, I think, fits more or less that bill. But setting aside animals and not worrying about degrees of consciousness or subtle forms of modification of it, just think about some standard complex human emotions like shame or anger. They, they clearly in our lives, and this is a fact well known to psychoanalysis, not that I'm going to try and educate anyone here on that <laughs> subject, they have a non-occurrent aspect. So if I'm ashamed of something, it can structure my conduct over time, whether or not at the times that I'm acting, I'm feeling the occurrent, any kind of occurrent feeling of shame. And we don't want to say this is just something disconnected from the occurrent episodes. We don't want to say, well, this is just a tendency to feel this way on certain occasions, because a lot of it's behavioral upshot. Right. Is quite dependent, independent of that, and it will fit rationally into one's behavior, structure it. And it's very tempting to think, once you've got this distinction in hand, that the real emotion is this non-occurrent thing, the dispositional thing. So it's not like an instinct, because you're not born with it. You could have been acquired it under specific conditions, and you will have done. I mean, specific conditions of experience. I'm not talking about anything scientific here. And this side of emotions tends to get ignored, I think. A lot of study, both in philosophy and in other disciplines, 
goes straight for the occurrence stuff, worries about the feeling of shame, but there's something that the feeling of shame expresses, which is, some, if you like, the sense of shame. It's not an, not an occurrent, dateable mental episode. It's something you're going to have for much longer, will influence your conduct in ways of which you're not so immediately conscious, necessarily. So I don't know what you guys think about the thought that emotions are in key part. The occurrent feelings are just the tip of an iceberg, and the rest shouldn't be understood as a state of consciousness, but it's very much a mental state. So in terms, you asked, you know, the, in terms of the, uh, whether you could have unconscious emotions, I think you said. So, I mean, the, every conscious state is unconscious or pre-conscious before it's conscious, right? So it doesn't just come out of nowhere. There's a lot of processing that goes into making that conscious state. So not all unconscious states or pre-conscious states lead to consciousness. So you, have, you can think of emotions as being pre-conscious in a sense, and sometimes they cross the threshold into <coughs> awareness. And I don't know if that jives at all with what you're saying. But well, in a way, I was thinking it misses the challenge is too grand a word, but the thought is the shame that structures your behavior may be expressible in the current conscious episodes, but it'll do the structure of your behavior whether or not it is and when it's not, so that, yes, you can think of it as something that can bob up into consciousness, but if you think of it merely as something that is always aspiring to that state, in a way you're ignoring the important thing about it, which is, mm -hmm. it's a, if you like, it's a take on the world that gives you reasons to act, that you have reasons to have, but that needn't be expressed in feelings mm -hmm. when the current episodes I, to I do its what, work. I yeah. love what you're saying because in terms of the shapes of stories, most people are not aware of this language of sentiment that is taking them on a roller coaster ride, but it is structuring their experience of the narrative entirely. And in terms of the authors that I write about, often when they have what I would call this noesis or noetic experience, mm -hmm. it's because the present moment seems to tap into previous moments that often have some kind of an emotional component. So the present has an immediate depth that it had not had before that becomes explainable mm -hmm. through emotion that is always there, but it is only achieved yeah. in these moments, yeah. right? But is the background. Yeah, no, yeah. That's, a, that's a nice way of elaborating in a specific context, the kind of ideas I've got. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I was uh, following up on this, I was thinking of people who say they have no shame and what that actually means in this context. Because I, in thinking of this particular emotion, it would seem to me, and, and I'm very, I've been very much influenced by the idea that there's a physical response first that then has to have a cognition and a narrative. So the issue of shame is interesting because you, you might not say, I, I guess you could say that people that they have no fear so I don't recognize danger. But shame is a little bit more complex because it's very culturally specific and it's very situation specific. But it is, in, so no shame, we'll bracket that for a minute, but it, it seems that in shame itself you might have this emotional reaction in the minute and, or in the moment, and then there are going to be different levels of shame. I mean, you know, you might be a kid and you steal the candy and your mom yells at you and you're ashamed of it for the moment. I shouldn't have stolen the candy. But there are these other instances, it seems to me, where there might be something you really want to hide that you really don't want people to know about and you'll have to have a narrative in different times. And there'll be some intermediate kinds of 
shames that only you feel, maybe nobody else would think it was serious, whatever it was you did, uh, and then you, and you, you will develop a narrative that you almost don't need to develop, basically. Um, so I, I, I guess I think shame is a good example because I think we've all probably felt something that we felt some shame about. And we also have the people, I mean, I know I've met people who say, I have no shame, I can do anything. I don't know what you'd say about that as a philosopher. No, I don't them, but, um, I mean, just, I like, shame's a complex example. And in that respect, <laughs> perhaps it wasn't helpful for me to start with it. That yeah. It's a very interesting emotion, but I could have made my points with anger or resentment or yeah. bearing someone, a grudge towards someone. So it is very interesting. It's complex. But, yeah. The other it has a complexity that many others lack. Well, but the thought, yeah. We're, we're talking about, you know, feeling states that go from the sort of pure biological, let's say, before there's any cognitive interpretation of that response. So we go from the, the, the biological and animal experience of these states to a cognitive state that humans can experience. But then there's also a social level that we're all sort of talking about now, I think, which is where, like, for example, with shame, it could be dormant. You could be feeling shame, but not actively at every moment. You say, well, that's not reflected in the way my brain is at this moment, but I'm still in that state in some way. I think that's important to understand when, for example, we might want to model computers to have emotions, right? Because if the idea is that the computer state must always be X for it to be in a state of shame, that doesn't seem to match the way humans experience it, where there's this dormancy that can occur because of the social aspect of it. Yeah, I think we're going to have to say some things about computers having emotions and see if I can do this uh, in a clear way and feel free to push back if I'm not making sense, because I used to design the insides of computers. That was what I was doing when I got interested in the human brain. And most people here, do we have any other computer scientists or computer architects or engineers here? One back there, two, a couple, okay, three, four, oh good, I'm not the only one. Um, so most people here don't design the insides, and you see what's on the monitor or on your phone. I, by computers, I mean everything that computes. And when I originally proposed giving machines some mechanisms of emotion, I'd try to separate mechanisms of from the singular concept of emotion, I was inspired a lot by Joe's work and, and other work that recognizes there are all these stages of processing, right? As he's saying, you know, there's something that senses a threat, right? Even before you may be able to realize that you're feeling anything. Uh, there are things, um, there are drugs you can give people that make them feel a little bit more aroused, right? Or a little bit more calm. Um, and that could contribute, you know, some other um, biochemical imbalance could contribute to some background feeling state, right? There are all these, uh, I think what you were using the term biological. Then there are these um, things we think of, and the, you use the word cognitive, you separated cognitive and social. Cognitive People seem to use, some people use it for everything in the brain, including affective, because they just want to, they want to call everything the brain's doing cognitive. Uh, so we've got these very low level kinds of background processes that are happening in computers all the time. Um, and m most of them have nothing to do with emotion. Um, but some of them perform functions that are similar to the functions that emotion performs in animals and people. Um, so, for example, if you wanted to have a computer detect some emergency states and take some actions, 
you might program it to watch out in the background for some things that would be potentially dangerous to that computer, um, take some actions which could even rise up to the level of alerting people who are conscious to start to be worried about that computer, right? So we have all these things we don't see that are happening inside that could look like early stage emotion mechanisms. Then we have very surfacey stuff like the robot Kismet, the first social robot that we put a, um, Cynthia Brazil did her PhD on this and first time she showed me Kismet, Kismet had these big pink paper ears and she thought, oh, I'm kind of Kismet express all these emotions with these ears. <laughs> and I was like, you know, it's kind of ambiguous <laughs> with the ears. And she's like, yeah, well, this means interested and this means, so. I'm like, I don't know if I can remember those. Why don't we give it a mouth? <laughs> you know? um, so she finally decides to give it a mouth because valence, positive, negative, like if the computer sort of is looking like it's smiling to see you and uh, frowning if it, uh, you know, is disagreeing with something you're asking it to do. Um, I thought that would be useful. So she did that. It was amazing. She did a brilliant job, uh, better than anything I suggested. And that is what most people think of when they think of a machine having emotion. They think of it displaying the appearance of having emotion, uh, which is very different. It's trivial to do that. How many people had a, an early Mac that had the little digital <laughs> smile on the screen when it just booted up properly, uh, which was like a brilliant way to make the Mac sort of look happy to see you uh, when it just turned on properly. So to, to give computers mechanisms of emotion involves a huge spectrum of different kinds of things, from things in the background that we don't see or think of as emotion and general interaction on up to things a lot of people call emotion, but it's just a program saying display a smile or display a little image that looks happy or sad. And you're working on what now? What are you working on now? In the oh, golly, lots of things. <laughs> lots of different kinds of AI that mostly are trying to give people skills emotional intelligence as opposed to trying to build uh, computers that, as my colleague Marvin Minsky used to say when he would try to get us all working on future AI, he'd say, let's build an AI that's so amazing that we'll be lucky if it keeps us around as household pets. <laughs> and at, at first we were all like, yeah, that's so cool. Let's, let's do it. Like climb Everest with technology. Uh, and then later I became a mom and I thought, you know, do I really want my grandchildren to say that I'm the reason they're household pets? Uh, so we, the Media Lab actually was set up in contrast to the AI Lab at MIT. Mm -hmm. um, AI Lab was really focusing on just the AI. Mm -hmm. Media Lab said, how about we focus on people and build AI that helps people have superpowers? as opposed to just building uh, mm -hmm. technology that's going to leave us around as household pets. I wonder if you could say something about the ability to understand human emotion, right? Effectiva, how mm -hmm. well we can use faces, because a lot of times I run into um, people saying, I just can't do this at all, and I'll never do this, the science is not behind it, and yet... I'm amazed at how well, um, in terms of these large language models and in terms of the work that I do with sentiment analysis, how trivial it is uh, to actually have a machine understand human emotion. And I worry that when we say it can't be done, that we're not spending enough time thinking about when it does do it well, um, what we will do about that. So what is your feeling about how successful effective AI has been in terms of understanding and quantifying human emotional experience? Because once it can do that, then the possibility for manipulating human experience becomes a very real possibility. 
Yeah, and let me be picky about understanding versus quantifying. All right, we often throw around the term that the computer understands stuff because we just don't have enough good words in English right. to describe exactly what it does. And when I do describe exactly what it does, you'd all say, Roz, you're taking too long. That's boring. <laughs> so we plug in the word understand. But computers don't understand like we do. They don't think like we do. They don't feel like we do. They don't have knowledge. They don't have awareness like we do. We can simulate a lot of these things. We can give them abilities that look like, like the best English word we have that's a single word description of it is understand. But it's so different from our understanding. Uh, so um, originally, AI, one argument was it should have been called complex information processing. It probably wouldn't have raised as much money and gotten as much attention if they did that, but it's a much more accurate description of what it's doing. And similarly, when I decided to say, um, to call it emotion recognition in my book, Affective Computing, I was motivated, I was working on computer vision at the time, and in computer vision, we called everything object recognition, car recognition, dog recognition, you know, everything was, um, when you taught the computer to, out, to take in an image or a video and output a label, uh, or a construct, as some people call it, uh, a word, or a set of words, then that process was called recognition. But it never meant that the computer truly understood anything about what it was labeling. It just means that we built mathematical functions that take lots of faces with lip corner pulls and zygo, you know, cheek muscles going up and little eye crinkles. And when you show it lots of those examples under different lighting, different races, different angles, could we get the computer to reliably say action unit six, action unit 12, or it looks like a, looks like a happy smile or it looks like a fake smile. So we were able to build the mathematics to do that. It never meant that a computer understood that somebody was happy. And when we set up Affectiva, the first company to try to do this with hopefully reputable science, because there were some people claiming really crazy things at the time, uh, one of the things that drove me nuts is a lot of the customers wanted us to call it happy or sad. They wanted the Paul Ekman Basic 6 emotion label attached to it. And I said, well, it doesn't mean the person feels that, right? Like, we can all make these facial expressions. And then I realized, well, we all know that we can fake it on our face, right? So nobody's going to actually believe that if you label it the way they want it to, it means that it really feels happy, the person really feels happy. And yet, then later, very recently, as I heard you talking in the lobby, there were some criticisms that the stuff is bunk because it's claiming to see somebody's happy, but it's not really recognizing what they feel. But from day one, we've been very clear. It's not recognizing your innermost feeling of happiness. Uh, it's only labeling what it can observe based on what people have taught it should be labeled in these cases. There's also been some pushback on the whole Ekman universality of yes. cases that you know it's not as clean cut around the world as it seems. A smile, you know, it's just not the same. If you yeah. if you ask people to judge these faces and give them choices, they can sometimes do pretty well. Yeah. But if it's just you know, what is that? What face is that? What emotion? Yep. They're terrible. Well, and some people smile when they're uncomfortable. Or an awkward right. situation. Yes. So, like, we've published uh, the true smile of happiness appearing with frustration a lot. And it's even been mm -hmm. observed in little children with that, not just uh, university students and people in um, high-tech companies when the technology irritates them. You'll often see this, you know, AU6 and 12 activated on the face. 
that I was told originally meant they were truly happy and our data showed, <laughs> nope, not true. They are not happy. <laughs> However, we did measure that the dynamics of the smile are different and Paul's original taxonomy was based on static faces mm -hmm. and showing those images. Yeah. Um, Jim Russell also nicely showed that uh, you could take that protocol that was used to get to argue for basic emotions uh, where you would show what Paul said was a happy face, a fear face, an anger face, a sad face. They were almost all negative, except the happy face. And if you took out the list of words, you could label it and took out happy and put in proud, or took out happy and put in pretty much any other positive word, people would choose that word for that face. So is the problem the labeling? Or is it something well, it's, else? It's overloaded. These, it's these overloaded. faces appear in lots of different situations. They do appear often with true joy and happiness. Uh, unless somebody suppresses it or has a neurological difference. Uh, but, you know, there are lots of differences. There are certainly social contexts and game contexts, like poker, where people suppress them. Maybe an EMG would pick up that your the muscle is firing even though you're suppressing it. But they, um, in fact, in affective computing, I wrote originally that to, to for a computer to try to recognize a person's emotion in the sense of really label it properly, it should not only try to observe everything it can, the face, the voice, the gestures, the postures, multimodal, but also reason about the situation the person was in. I think, though, in the, in the Ekman categorization, he really distinguishes between primal survival emotions, social emotions, mm -hmm. cultural emotions, and he, he you know, names the projection on, to the expression. He doesn't get into, and I think that's the right thing to do, um, that different emotions are, have different valences in different cultures. So, for instance, if you feel fear in one culture, you're heroic because you feel the fear and you're going to respond to it. Hmm. But if you show fear in another culture, that means something is really distorted in you, and it's cowardly. So he doesn't assign significance, the cultural significance, or differentiate those. Yeah, there, there was a general disregard for the context, which includes the culture and includes the social setting, whether you feel comfortable signaling with your face what you're actually feeling inside or whether you feel you need to suppress it. As we see in negotiation sessions, for example, I learned when um, you know, this leader of a very big company was, we, we showed him this new technology that we thought was so cool, we thought he was just going to love it. And he went completely blank in his face. And I'm like, wow, boy, was I wrong. Like, I, I just thought he would love this. And I was so puzzled. And it turns out we were kind of negotiating the next phase of some research at MIT. And then a few minutes later, I hear him around the corner with the engineer going, this was the most amazing. Like, he, he was like through the roof with how cool it was. But in front of us, he just went totally like Botox. How much do you want for it? <laughs> yeah. Like, well, that's why he's the CEO, you know? I wanted to go back to the original, sort of, there were, there were these two different distinctions that I want to clear up because I want to, I'd love to hear more thoughts about, um, okay, given the, the, the distinctions you're drawing between uh, human recognition and discernment, let's say, in computers, um, how to improve the way computers process or process information or give advice, et cetera. Okay, so the distinctions were rational and rational and rational emotional. So as if 
maybe irrational. Someone might be led to think irrational is the same thing as emotional, which I don't think it is, because the other proposal was that some part of wisdom may partake of emotion. So I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that and its implications for computer pro programming, but just in terms of human, the human experience, are emotions part of wisdom? Part of wisdom, do they contribute to wisdom in some way? As a philosopher, I'm obliged to distinguish questions yet further here, so if you'll allow me. So there's a, one is that um, can emotions guide you to, uh, epistemically towards how the world is? That's, I think, the question you were apparently asking. But there's a question lurking in the way you framed it, which is that can emotions themselves be rational or not? You might have thought they, you know, you just stuck with them. They just happened to you. It, asking are you rational to feel this way is like asking are you rational to feel pain when someone cuts your hand. But actually, the idea that Joe gave us earlier, that a lot of emotions involve cognitive evaluations of the world, whether all do or not, a lot of them do, gives a purchase for the thought they can be at the very least fitting or not. So if I'm angry with you, I better think you've done something bad towards me. Otherwise, my anger makes no sense at all. I mean, I, that's not to say I couldn't continue to feel it, but it would be, in a perfectly good sense, irrational. So even a fairly boring, bog-standard emotion like anger does seem to admit of some kind of evaluation that looks semi-rational. And that is a different question from whether my anger could be a good guide to how the world is. They might link up, but... David, I never thought I'd be citing Max Weber here, but anyway, um, there, he has these categories that I use all the time about rational action, which is simply means and rationality. In other words, I, I need to, I don't know, um, write a talk or something, I, I figure out the best steps to do that, very simple, it's supposed to be what guides us. Uh, and he makes a distinction between irrationality and non-rationality, yes. and I really like the non-rationality, because irrationality suggests crazy, out of control, and totally, you know, just out there in some way. But non-rational action actually presupposes that you can take actions that aren't means-end oriented, but that actually are oriented towards other things, emotions, maybe, values. I believe in God. I'm taking a religious action or something like that. And I, I think, in some ways, I think we should almost get rid of the category of irrationality. Um, <laughs> because I think it leads us, um, I mean, I think at least in my area of work and my dis the disciplines that I work in, it, it leads us to dismiss certain things. Um, and, uh, for example, I'm spending a lot of time now working on right-wing politics in Europe and the United States. And I think if you, there is a kind of standard narrative, I'm sure if any of you read the news, you've seen some of this about, well, you know, people vote for Trump or they vote for this person or that person because they're sort of out there somewhere and they're sort of lost and they've been left behind and all this kind of thing. And what it really sort of um, enables people to, it enables a kind of dismissiveness because somehow or other these people don't understand their own, you know, position in the world and they're just acting on emotion, well, I don't want to say emotions actually, they're acting on some absence. And I think when, and, and in some sense they're irrational because they're, they're going against values that presumably all of us rational people have. Um, and I, I think that that category of feeling that there are certain modes of behaviors that are totally out of control in different ways actually gets in the way of trying to figure out 
what the what a better analysis of a particular situation would be. Again, I'm working at a sort of mid-level. I'm not doing individual analysis of the kind of work I do. But I do think that term leads you in the wrong direction often. So I, I know it's not going to go away anytime soon. But I'm called down with subdividing a rational, irrational, so yeah. to speak. And I wouldn't think of rational as having to be means end rational either. Yeah. Theoretical rationality, the kind of rationality we all pursue in our studies, is not primarily means end. Well, rational. yeah, I yeah. Mean, it's so, a difference between yeah. what we pursue and what's in the real world. <laughs> but there are irrational ways of knowing. It's, it, or non-rational ways of knowing. Well, again, I think it's the way we have started to use the word in the modern yeah. world, but I, I agree with what you're saying, yeah. I mean, it seems a lot of uh, literature is about the attempt to distinguish between when emotion is leading one in the right direction and when it is leading one in the wrong direction, and often on the surface, they seem like the same thing, right? And, and you know, Proust, who I write about quite a bit, it, that he sometimes emotion leads him completely astray and uh, almost entirely delusional, and other times it is absolutely the key to finding what the narrator wants to do next. And they look almost the same on the surface. Um, so it's almost impossible to distinguish in the moment. And you know, his novel is called In Search of Lost Time because only time usually uh, unfolds to demonstrate whether emotion has led astray or in the right direction. And the question would be then how might we augment uh, computers in their interaction with us so that the, these distinctions make sense? Like, how? How might a computer be able to be programmed so that a certain emotion is, emotional reaction is seen as being, you know, rational in the sense we're all trying to get at here? Is that possible? Well, it seems to me a lot of our thinking and our, <clears throat> our uh, behavior is based on emotions, that emotions are fundamental and are at the bottom of most of what we do, and, and some of those emotions we don't even have names for. So it's hard for me to see how you could have a computer getting to that point without ourselves yet fully understanding what emotions are in us, and how do we create that in computers. The other thing that also I wanted to say something about is that there are some emotions we use or words we use a lot that are ambiguous about whether they are really emotion or not. For instance, guilt. You hear people say a lot, oh, I feel so guilty, I feel so guilty. Majority of time, they say I feel so guilty just to be able to repeat what they've done already bad. <laughs> so that they don't feel guilty, they're just afraid. <laughs> So whether the emotion of guilt really exists or not, I don't know. In my work, I have rarely observed it. I guess your patients aren't neurotic enough. No, they, they talk a lot about guilt. But what I always detect is that they then repeat the same thing. You know, a guy goes and uh, has an affair or a woman goes and has an affair. I feel so guilty about what I did. The following night, they're doing the same thing. So it's, it's a word. It's, it's not, on the other hand, if you are afraid, you're actually afraid. 
fear when you feel it is different than something like guilt. Is it possible that it's a punctuated emotion? I mean, I'm I, thinking about how we're talking about these emotions that surface, and the best story in Proust is about grief. As a young child, he witnesses this man whose wife has died, and then all of a sudden he exclaims what a beautiful day it is, and he thinks, how can this man truly be grieving his wife when he's noticed it's a beautiful day? And in fact, he later comes to understand that grief comes in these moments, but only a little bit at a time, because you can't have it. And is it possible that they truly do feel guilty? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, where does that emotion go when we're saying it still structures behavior? Is it still there? Or... The, the mice didn't well, fill out the questionnaires on their guilt <laughs> levels, so we weren't able to track down that region of the brain, right? <laughs> But that's what all the mythologies and religions deal with. Going back to the shape of stories, which I'm so taken yeah. with that phrase. I'm a Jungian analyst. I listen to people make mythologies out of their lives on a daily basis. And I also know and can actually allude to archetypal tales, which are predispositions that are emotionally laden to move into imagination and narrative. And it's the way people heal themselves by doing so in whole cultures. And it's also a way a whole culture can make itself pathological, like still weeping over the fall of Kosovo in 1100, you know, and, and reacting to that. But I, I think it's the storytelling is so crucial to our whole being. As a way to structure our understanding of experience. Well, it's instead, of, it re, we react in the moment, and that's implicit in what we're talking about today. And then we re respond. And people respond through some kind of act that almost turns experience into culture. Mm -hmm. um, I want to speak to Ed's point about not really knowing what it is, so it's hard to build. And this was something people challenged me on early. Like, how can a computer recognize emotion? We can't even define what an emotion is. And I, when I first started work on affective computing, I looked, uh, you know, I read a ton of papers on emotion. One day a person comes into my office with books from here to here, <laughs> all of his psychology books on emotion. He goes, you need to read these. Um, and I did. And not, they, nobody agreed on a definition of emotion. I found one paper that talked about more than 90 definitions of emotion. And to this day, there seems to be, with each new emotion theorist, a new theory of emotion, uh, Lisa included recently. She's had several, you know, planting her flag in several places. I think it would be nice if the field of psychology would move kind of like physics has toward trying to find a unified field theory uh, of this instead of each new theorist coming along and planting like, they, they do the landscape. Lisa did a picture of these, like, oh, and here's so-and-so's theory, and here's so-and-so's theory, and there's no flag over here, so let's plant one here. Um, but when we Bear try to... physicists have failed so far. Hmm. So ah, well, <laughs> they're making some progress. <laughs> they um, like the idea of it. So, <laughs> so in computer science, we often build things in order to understand them better. It's in trying to build computer vision that we started asking more questions about how the human visual system works. Like, okay, there has to be something to handle this contrast processing. Maybe something to handle these edge detectors. Maybe something to put together the shape and the shading. And so we uh, did a lot of interacting between our computer vision people and Harvard brain vision people for quite a while. And it was reading more about the 
brain that got me interested in emotion when I realized suddenly there were these subcortical areas involved in seeing and your work like that an animal could could fear something experience uh, you know behave like it was afraid <laughs> correct me if I'm not using the right terminology um, with uh, a sound without the audio cortex after you took out the audio cortex it's like crazy what's the pathway and Joe showed a pathway and it didn't go through the cortex and all the stuff we were trying to model with computers involved the cortex at the time and I said oh my goodness we need to look at these other regions that involve emotion, memory, and attention. And as a woman trying to be taken seriously in engineering, I'm not touching emotion, um, but I'll look at memory and attention. Um, you, you know, that didn't work. Uh, but uh, it was learning, you know, that that was involved while trying to understand vision by building it. And I think emotion is, is on a similar trajectory. We're, we're trying to understand it by building it. And, you know, we don't really know what it, you know, we hear these fabulous conversations about what is guilt, what is shame, uh, what is fear, what is threat, danger, what's that whole experience? So uh, what proportion of um, AI people are going in the direction you are trying to understand human behavior better as opposed to trying to make just, AI better? Well, I'd say it was a lot more until it started getting so more. much hype and money <laughs> that now it's okay. largely about almost everybody's just trying to do large language models these yeah. days. Uh, but before that, uh, there were, you know, the, a lot of the reasons for building AI were to understand the human mind. And that's part why people like Marvin would say, oh, Roz, all that machine learning stuff isn't helping with that. Because we know the brain doesn't just do all these mathematical function approximations. Even if it's a neural net that we've called the model that's doing it, it's not behaving the way that our brains actually behave. So one of the interesting things, working with large language models, um, even when John and I were working with GPT-2, I was amazed at its ability to manipulate the language of emotion. And the first time I had it write a poem in which uh, there was blankness and a lack of emotion, and then this perfect entrance of emotion, very much as a very sophisticated poet would do, I was very surprised. And so that emotional ability came even as that when we would test people, was this written by an AI or a human, the way you could tell were logical fallacies. So we think of computers as more logical, but in fact, it was making minor mistakes in terms of logic, even as it had already mastered certain elements of manipulating the language of emotion. So we can also see that with these larger models as they become larger, that there does appear to be some kind of um, understanding of, understanding in quotes, of um, emotion. Um, and of course, the whole question, does it understand? Is it, as it scales, is there complexity? I realize that's a whole debate that we'll put aside. But um, there does seem to be very interesting examples of emotion in these large language models that came before the more rational components of grammar, counting, et cetera, right? It, it's, um, it's not coming up with it from a blank slate, right. okay? It's coming up with it because it has had as input all of the emotional texts people have put online. The other night, uh, I had an experience where I was quite impressed with it, actually. I, I don't want to totally, um, you know, knock it down to the floor. Uh, I was snacking late at night, and I said to GPT-4, uh, um, can you yell at me for snacking <laughs> late at night? <laughs> um, and it says, 
oh, I can't do that. that would, I'm not allowed to be rude or offensive, right? And um, I said, well, you, uh, can you, oh, oh and it, then it gives me some very polite, neutral reasons about why snacking late at night can be bad for you, like <laughs> too much um, salt and sugar, you know, and metabolism off it and all these things. It had a nice list, nice rational list of like what you would read and a, you know, like a logical cognitive motivational argument for why you shouldn't snack at night. And I said, okay, well, but now you are able to represent with different emotional tone a piece of text I give you. Please uh, restate that above with um, some different emotional tones. So it then proceeds to restate it with like, you idiot, you shouldn't be eating at night. This is terrible for your health. It starts like lashing out. That was its angry example. Then it gives a sad example like, oh, I feel really bad because you could be hurting your health by doing this, you know, so it has actually uh-huh. been taught these uh, constructs and ways to rephrase this based upon people teaching it that. Now, somebody who doesn't know how these models work could just be blown away with how, oh my goodness, it really is sad. Oh, it really is mad at me, uh, which is fascinating to me because when I first proposed affective computing and one of um, our staff came to me, uh, she was a designer. And the computer was over there, and she turns her back to the computer, let's say Joe is me, and she goes, Roz, does it know I don't like it? Because <laughs> um, she thought that it was behaving so badly that it must be like reading her feelings already, you know, recognizing her innermost feelings, and kind of out to get her, right? Because it wasn't, because it was driving her crazy. And now that the large language models actually can sound like they're out to get you, right? We, mm-hmm. There's this opportunity, as I think you were hinting at earlier, to massively manipulate what people believe about them, even though, again, they don't understand us. Mm-hmm. Something as cool as, I can hear you. Yeah. Now when you, you turn her back. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> I can hear you. <laughs> no, I, I was horrified when she said that earlier. I'm like, oh, golly, is this where it's going? You know, people are al- so people are already willing to believe that the computer, even decades ago, that the computer uh, knew their feelings. Yeah. I mean, our diva bot, GPT-2, invited me to smoke weed, uh, told me to use a condom. I mean, it was quite charming. I don't know if that's good advice or bad, but... Bad when you're smoking weed. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, making these kinds of recommendations, even as it couldn't get the grammar right, um, you know, of course, it's learned it from humans, obviously, right? Or learned again. Yeah, massively uh, read. Red. Not understood, but read everything right. out there. But do you think, Ros, there's a room for gaining understanding from retroengineering engineering these things, even if they don't, in the end, do it the way the human brain does? Right. So you could have the... Uh, if you think about old-style old computer vision research, the thought was, well, there's some functional description of the problems you must solve. You've got to extract the boundaries between objects, etc. And then there's al- an algorithmic breakdown of what you need to do to do that, and then there's a neural implementation. And so you said... The computers don't have anything like a neural implementation. Maybe they don't even have anything like the algorithmic breakdown, but if you get it to behave as we behave, maybe you could learn something about the functional level of analysis. So, for instance, to cash it out a bit, how various emotions interact with each other and with beliefs. That kind of, that kind of level of description. Is there room for thinking you might learn from doing this, even though they don't, in the end, do it the way we do it? This is, this is part of an active conversation among AI researchers right now. And the word emerge, emergent, is always coming up. Like it wasn't 
programmed to uh, explicitly reason about emotion in this case, this uh, categorization, you know, kind of emerges from what it has digested out there. Um, but, I mean, it's also digested lots of books on emotion, right? I mean, it's, it's read, you know, everything anybody here's written, and if, if it's out there. Uh, so it's, it's still kind of a, like, is it really arising, or are we just getting more clever at helping it retrieve something impressively appropriate at the moment that you give it an input, uh, and, you know, it's retrieving things that you would, you would be impressed by if a person retrieved those things at that time, right? But it's trained on those examples. I mean, I was on a, a webinar with Mark Daly, who works in this mm -hmm. field, and he was suggesting that language itself seems to have some kind of uh, structure of knowledge that it seems to have mapped out, right? right. So that there is, um, and maybe, you know, on your point, maybe there are, maybe intelligence is substrate independent. Maybe it doesn't, maybe it can operate differently or in a different material, but still ultimately be something like intelligence or emotion for that matter. I, I don't know. I mean, but these are real questions. Mm -hmm. And if it can't be done, then we're good. But if it could be done, then we're in trouble and we should start thinking about it. And certainly humans already are responding to it, uh, talking to it as a therapist or for, advi yeah. for advice and, and, on and not... And that's not new. That's not since... <laughs> that's not new. But that's it, now that it's better, yeah. maybe a little bit more dangerous. Yeah, it is. Can you tell with your students, if you assign them an essay, and you know that they're responding with a, a chat uh, or a bot, whatever you call them. Yeah. Can you tell anything about the student's emotional life, even if they're using an outside construct in expressing it? Well, I mean, a huge number of students now are doing all of their writing using these large language models. Right. You know, I'm hearing 80, 90%. Uh, so I think it is um, divorced from their own emotional state. And that is one concern, that writing as a method of processing and understanding emotion and how one feels and what one feels will be lost as a medium um, because one is outsourcing it to these machines. Mm -hmm. Speaking of writing, that I've read about uh, writing exposure therapy, which is supposed to be very good. What do the clinicians think? Do you have much yes. experience with that? Journal keeping, I mean, has been part of that for a very long time. Yeah. When you write it, you do learn about yourself, you know. Of course, of course. There was an experience I had from reading the 400 billion year old brain, which was gratitude, which I think of as a form of joy. When you admitted that for a long time you went astray and apologized to the field, for how you led them astray. I thought that was the most extraordinary example of integrity. Oh, thank you. It's the four billion year, not four million. Oh, well. <laughs> I can't get my about the billion. So we're thinking we should open up the floor to questions. If yeah. anyone has a question, we'll invite you to come up to this um, microphone. Wondering what are the chances are that computers will do what humans do, but in a totally different method? I know for a fact that they try to get computers to uh, talk. They try to imitate how humans do it. It was a total failure. It was only until they tried a totally different method 
and then um, understanding speech, and even image. The way the computers do it is totally different. Maybe the old computers will find a totally different way. You know, when people try to first learn how to fly planes, they want to imitate birds. It was only until they decided to forget about nature and do it from first principles. So how would that apply to AI? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an excellent point. And as we, you know, we think again, like, there are lots of reasons to build AI, right? There's, you could build it to try to model something and ask questions that are very specific about something you don't understand. You can build it just to help people do something like fly, right, or go to Mars. Uh, we could build it to help give people, um, you know, emotional superpowers also, actually. There are people using the generative AI with writing now to help people uh, see, you know, images of, you know, that go with their text and share that with somebody else and have a conversation about that that's very different than you might have if you're just opening your diary. So it's, you're absolutely right, and we should keep that in mind. It's very important. This was so interesting. I just want to say thank you very much to all of you. Um, I have a question about emotions on a macro scale, and I guess it's mostly for Mabel. I was interested to see in a recent issue of The Economist um, the headline, How Fear Has Shaped Human Affairs. A new history argues that power depends on frightening people. And it's a, a review of a new book called Fear, An Alternative History of the World by Robert Peckham. And I wondered if, if you could say something about that. I can't say something. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I should have something quickly to say about it, but I mean, I, I don't know the book, but it was one way to start, so I hate to comment on it, but uh, it makes a certain amount of sense. People are strategically looking. Uh, there's some means and rationality for new ways to sort of redirect all these you know, massive events that we've all lived with. Um, and it doesn't completely surprise me that a book like that would come out. Um, and, you know, there's a whole theory in political science about um, war actually has the capacity to make war, to do war, to make war makes for social cohesion and for bringing people together around national states. And it would make a certain amount of sense for fear to be one of these. Um, uh, but Fear, actually, now that I'm sort of pre-associating here, uh, the idea of having enemies, friends and enemies, which actually comes from Carl Schmitt, who was also a Nazi, um, basically. Uh, but the theory was picked up in the um, 1970s, um, some writing in American political science and political sociology. Makes a certain amount of sense, because if it's us against them. And so in that sense, war, I mean, I don't even know if I would use the word fear. Fear is almost, I, I, now I'm going to start criticizing the book that I haven't read until you actually brought it up here. But in a way, some of the issues that we're talking about, it seems to me the minute you have an external person, that a group that you could project on, you have a great capacity for um, cohesion. I mean, if you think of the United States after 9-11, 
And it was one of the sort of moments that uh, George Bush had his highest, you know, ratings as president or something, where he drew people together, right? And there was a clear enemy, a dramatic enemy that we could all see. Um, we could also say that we were all afraid, and if, if you were in living in New York, you were afraid, and if you were living trying to get on an airplane, you were afraid. But the, the social cohesion, actually, I, I think comes from the opposite, actually, the sort of knowing there's somebody who isn't me that can threaten me, but not the fear, because fear is almost secondary. But that's my quick sort of, I don't have the GP, whatever, to write the answer. Yeah, but I blurbed the book, and it's very good. Oh, all right, thank you. At least when I, I can't, you know, attest to the Is he a political aspect. scientist? I didn't recognize it. Uh, he, he, he writes about a lot of things. So. Yes. Do, you have the, do you have the book with you? Is there something unique about um, collective emotion versus the individual experience? Is there something different, or is it just the same mechanism contained? Well, with a well, emotions are very contagious. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't. I, yeah. I mean, they also like you know one of the things that I'm always fascinated with is political, um, you know, sort of uh, slogans that people like, and or that move people in different ways. And I, you know, I think of um, "Make America Great Again" um, as well as "Yes, We Can." Two different political ideologies. And I think like one of the brilliant things about them both, no matter what your political persuasion is, is that they leave the ends open. You can fill in the narrative, you can be moved by it, especially if you feel some passion for either making America great or hope and change, and yes, we can. But whatever it is that the, the object of those hopes and emotions are totally left to you so that they can actually bring in many different mm -hmm. kinds of people. And I do think that there's probably something different, I would say. I know the contagion thing is very popular aside from, but I, I actually think that there is something more structural, people in the same kinds of social locations that read or react or emote to these things in the same way. So I think there's a difference between collective emotion and individual emotion, but obviously collective emotion comes from individual emotion. Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm John Shutt. I'm Kate's collaborator on the technical side. and I, It's been a great panel, and I'd like to pull the, so many diverse experts here on... I was just giving a, a conference on Thursday with a lot of physicists and uh, engineers doing simulation using, using AI, and it's very interesting. To, if you draw a spectrum between uh, a lot of the human, a lot of the literature that we do, we have humanists, we have people in, in literature and art who are very, find this whole AI thing very abhorrent. And, you know, a lot of it is, I think some of it is denial. And on the other end of the spectrum, when I was talking to these physicists and these mathematicians, they don't believe it's true knowledge unless you can elucidate a mathematical model that is underlying the whole system and generating everything that you see. And so the interesting thing, this summer we were at this theoretical computer uh, conference, and the most open-minded, I find, are these theoretical com uh, computationalists who see no boundaries. And so it speaks to like the Santa Fe, this complexity science, this emergent properties, and so one of the things that uh, I said as an example, because I had studied some medicine, uh, is it's amazing that out of a simple sequence of ATCG, repeated three billion times, out of that simple sequence, we can create a full human being in all this complexity. 
So my question is this, is that a lot of people say that I, you know, we can't explain it, so I can't do it. Or there's something unique about humanity. There's something, the, the divine spark or something. But for the group, and this is what worries me most working as technology, is I'm a bit of a, mechani I'm a, bit of a, a, a mechanical universe. I, if I can see the mechanism, I do believe that it's substrate independent. And there's this beautiful convergence between you know, neuroscience and AI. You're seeing this cross-discipline. And if you look at some of the explainable AI, what they're doing, ablation studies, and they're going in and they're looking at you know, the, the matrices at various levels, and they're seeing, we've already seen like the visual you know, uh, pathways kind of recapitulated a bit. Now we're seeing some other things come up in recent weeks. So to the group, do you see some sort of inherent limitations that will safeguard humanity from what could potentially be the ultimate hack of humanity? Or if not, uh, what, how do you see that we could kind of put safeguards in there? Uh, there's a lot of talk right now about regulating, about issuing, like issuing licenses to even run these models. So I'll leave it at that. It's a complex question. But, but, but how can we know what the answer is? That would be a question we would ask you, Bob. Well, I, I defer I think, to all your I expertise think he because it can be done. I think he's worried that it can be done. I'm worried that it can be done, and I'm looking for some yeah. hope. <laughs> I'm looking for somebody who sees some natural breaks, some firewalls that I don't see. Um, or if there is none, what you recommend in terms of this discussion going on in the EU about the AI Act and just what we had in Congress you know, recently, how do you think humanity can, you know, keep the Pandora's lid half open? Just to be clear, is the hack to give these large networks actual emotions? Is that what you mean by hacking? Or oh, is it no, to give I them an understanding of emotions? I, I think the hack is that if we can, like an API, we can call into a, a software library. If, we can, if I can just call in, know a routine, if I can pre-digest some multimodal experience, some image, some song, something, some memory that has sentimental value for you, and I can shape your kind of evolution through time, your belief toward a particular political party or toward a product mm -hmm. or whatever you want. I, I just see that this could be tremendously uh, dangerous in the wrong hands to be able to understand, model, predict, and manipulate the evolution of emotions in humans. I definitely agree. I, you know, with that. I'm scared. <laughs> so are, are you, do, you, do you believe there's no inherent limitations? That, that I, I have no idea. I mean, this, I'm just so far out of my field, you know. Yeah. You don't think Hollywood's already doing this in a crude way? What's that? You don't think Hollywood's already doing this in a crude way? Well, well narratives are essentially well, emotional manipulation I, I on some level. I a book a few right? years ago that, that <laughs> described all the dangers of it, remember? Yeah, Max Tegmark and Sam Altman were just on a conference a couple of days ago. And I, I'm very curious because, you know, Affectiva is one of the models we've been teaching for years. Um, and, you know, it's a good proof of concept. And I do agree that it's, it's, it's doing surgery with a hacksaw at this point. But with enough data, it, for example, if I'm sitting in my Tesla, I've got a camera pointed at me. These cameras, as they get better and better, can detect my pupil dilation, my heart rate, my uh, you know, subcutaneous capillary dilation. Um, they know what I like, you know, how I drive in response to listen to different genres of music. All that rich information, you know, ever since I think about my children using a Chromebook, and they know how much time my son spent pausing at each certain question, what they got wrong, where they moved the cursor, where their eyes were tracking. With enough information, you don't have to, and this is the magic of these large language models, we don't have to have a deterministic label system. And who cares if the, if the terms are overloaded or we don't know 
happiness, but these models just work on masses of data. Eventually, they will, they will be able to model us and manipulate us, and, and that's what I'm worried about, and when I think about some of the uh, regulatory kind of governmental, uh, that worries me as well. So, you know, this is the brain trust. I mean, I, I'm at wit's end. Uh, it keeps me up at night. What, what would you like to answer? <laughs> How do I be brief? Uh, yeah, I, first of all, I do share a lot of your worries. I do think that we have to think about where the... So, I, there is potential... Uh, there is humongous potential for extending the reach of bad actors with this technology. Whether they want to spread misinformation, you know, they can use it. Whether they want to, uh, you know, well, we, we see in a uh, large country that I guess I, you can all imagine which large country is deploying this technology already against its, its citizens, um, not just to know who they are and where they're going, but also to read uh, um, heart rate, respiration, you know, physiology at a distance without people's prior informed consent, which are things I object to and Affectiva has objected to and uh, not things that we've promoted at all. But um, if there's no regulations against it and there are bad actors, some bad actors are going to deploy these technologies against their citizens. And probably already trying to. They already are, yeah. Um, what you find is it's not the AI doing it, it's a human using the AI to do it, okay? Behind the bad AIs, there's a bad human, there, there's a human who is, um, may not think of themselves as bad. They may think that this is good for the stability of their society or whatever, they, they weave some narrative as to why they're doing this. Um, but yeah, I share your, I, I share some very deep worries about how people use these AIs to uh, exert their power and influence over others. Ordinary people don't have access to the input, right? I mean, they can't put stuff in, like Wikipedia. Is. Oh, ordinary people can put stuff in. In fact, um, like we, one of my students and I actually developed an algorithm for jamming the um, non-contact uh, reading of this stuff from your video, but you still have to put this in your video. Um, there are ways to, like, for each of these innovations, we try to develop a counter innovation. It's kind of a technology race, right, to, to do these. And, but ultimately, I, I think an important thing to let people know is that the AIs are not evolving on their own to take over the world like they always do in the movies. Yeah. Uh, makes a great movie, makes a great narrative, you know, it sells a lot of tickets. Uh, it, in real life, it just doesn't work with the latest update on your phone if you don't uh, have a person fixing it regularly, right? Like, now, AIs are getting better at writing some code and so forth, but they still need a person telling them if it's right or wrong. The AI doesn't know anything. It doesn't know that what you fed it is gibberish that's wrong or that this actually is a really clever way to manipulate people. It just does what it's uh, enabled to do by people. For during my lifetime, I shouldn't worry about it. <laughs> Hi, thank you, everyone. My name is Wendy Cleary, and this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you very, very much. I am, I am the mother of Dylan Cleary, who is has the privilege of being a student of Kate and John's at um, 
at uh, Kenyon College, and I think he's president of your fan club, so <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Um, my understanding is that AI will be used at some point to do therapy, um, and as a psychotherapist myself and a clinician, one of my concerns or just thoughts is, will AI be able to um, convey empathy and compassion because as a psychotherapist, I found that to be one of the most curative factors in, um, in doing treatment with someone. And it's, it's really, it's the relationship between the, the analyst and the patient. And even over Zoom, because um, I imagine AI will be doing it you know, remotely, you cannot do the same deep work that you can do in person. So just as a therapist, that's one of my concerns. And I'm wondering if, AI can be taught compassion and empathy, not only to model that, but then to help to instill that in the, um, you know, in the patient themselves so that they can go on and feel more empathy and compassion towards themselves and others um, in their life. So that's just something that's been on my mind. We, uh, my student Jonathan Klein and I built one of the first uh, agents, pieces of software that did artificial empathy. It did it only in a very limited, narrow context. It was very, it was scripted. It was before GPT, long before, decades before. Uh, and then since then, there have been a lot of experiments with it, always, uh, you know, always reporting the successes, right? But, but success is very narrow, very, um, like, for example, we would put people in a situation where, uh, well, originally we tried to do a frustrating or non-frustrating situation. We actually could never succeed in building an entirely non-frustrating computer <laughs> interaction. So we, we finally wound up with a high frustration and a low frustration situation. And so we, we had a pretty good idea what kind of feeling they would have, right? So it didn't have to accurately understand their feelings. Uh, we could ask about it. And then instead of just letting them vent, we put them in random conditions where they got active listening, empathy, sympathy, uh, versus just um, polite responses. And the empathy condition led to significantly more uh, like benefits afterwards for the person. For example, they were more willing to go and engage with the original source of frustration longer when they were forced to do that than when um, then just like you know, heck, I'm getting out of here, right? This is. I don't want to deal with this. So we, we have seen benefits of it. It has since then been embedded into lots of different technologies. But I should say that it has never been anywhere near what a therapist could do or even a person with a, just a little bit of training could do uh, until recently with the large language models trained on very extensive dialogues. And now it is uh, able to simulate that um, kind of conversation much better. Now, is that going to be effective when it's in a bot, when it's in a piece of software? Uh, I know we're in a room full of therapists, so you're all like, oh no, is my job going away? Um, so I was talking to Sherry Turkle about this the other day, yeah. and I highly recommend Sherry's books to you. And Sherry's been dialoguing a lot with the bots lately. And we were both thinking that there's something else, and it is, there is something very important about being embodied. And there's a lot of things very important about it. And it's not just the emotion contagion and the fact that it's another real human being. Um, but but there's, there's something about it just being authentic and real 
and that the person is giving you the gift of their time. You know, when, when a bot's there and it can just like spew this to millions of people, and we've, we've actually, um, Rob Morris did a study with us with the same words of empathy, beautifully crafted by a person, given to people who are depressed, and they were randomly told whether it came from a bot or it came from a person. And when they said, now people say the stuff coming from the LLMs look as good as from a person, okay? But in this case, it came from a person. And when they were told it came from a person, they, they said it had a better effect on them than when it came from the bot. So even though the bots are getting as good as the people at knowing kind of what words might fit, it's, I don't think it's as effective. Roz, you said something about the, the um, time, the, the value of the time and so forth, but maybe some people would say, I don't have to pay for it if I use the, the bot. Yeah. And that's getting me some kind of other value. That's right. And people are getting value from having these conversations with bots. There are lots of stories where people go online and they talk to them and they have value. There are even people who build relationships. We've also, uh, with Tim Bigmore, I've done a lot of work on relational agents, how the agent can change its language with you over time so you start to bond with it. We've measured working alliance inventory and the bond dimension goes up when we give the agent these relational skills. But it doesn't... Um, it's still not as, it, it's, it, it, there are definitely are increasing amounts of effectiveness with it. Is it I, possible yeah. that different generations will respond differently? I just think that the younger generation is much more used to yeah. texting, mediated exchange, oh, where yeah. they're not actually one-on-one. I mean, one some on of them, um, you know, have their lover in a bot, right? This is yeah. a big issue in some parts of Japan, I hear, yeah. where people are just... They, the young men don't want to go out with a real female. They just want to date yeah. this bot. Yeah. Um, Hashiguro wrote a novel about that, Clara and the Sun. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It, it'll be an advantage that it's cheaper until they start adding in commercials. <laughs> <laughs> or until they want to have human children instead of uh, digital children. In the middle of your yeah. yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Hi, Tarun Jane. Uh, I do think there's hope. We can talk about it later. Um, this was amazing. Very fascinating how we started with history, the, uh, the historical dimension, coming to the present with AI. But just moving slightly away from AI for a moment, I'm curious, as people who have studied emotion in various different areas, what are the questions that really you're actively interested in now at the forefront of the field in your capacities are, like things that you really get excited about asking about emotion? Well, um, I just closed my lab, so I don't have any future in this. <laughs> but <laughs> I do think that, um, it, you know, fields evolve, right? So they start off with a lot of enthusiasm, and then they sort of degenerate in a way, because the things that were rigorous at the beginning become irrigorous as the field matures. Um, for example, I think in... In the beginning, the, it, how shall I put it? Well, the, the, um, there, was, it, there was a whole, most of the enthusiasm in the mid-90s in terms of brain research was doing emotion research, but without saying what emotion was at all. Uh, it didn't matter. I mean, if you 
ask someone to uh, write a paper on a motion. It's just a motion. Yes, okay, a motion. We did X, Y, and Z, and so it's a motion. Um, but even at that time, if you went into the psychology literature, there were theories about uh, emotion is an innate uh, state, emotion is a cognitive interpretation, uh, emotion as a, a, a group of a variety of uh, brain and body states that are going on simultaneously, or some others and would say that emotion is just the feeling itself and the other stuff is something else, which is what I say. But um, none of that was laid out in thousands and thousands of papers. And so even though people were studying, for example, measuring heart rate in response to a threatening stimulus presented subliminally or liminally, uh, that was called fear because fear is what the amygdala does, and the amygdala was generating a heart rate response, and therefore it was fear. But if you ask the person, they, don't, they didn't say they were afraid, especially with subliminal stimuli. The amygdala is activated, the responses occur, but they don't feel anything. They don't know what the stimulus is, and they don't have any feeling about it. So the feeling can't be what's driving the amygdala response. Um, and so the, there was just an, an unclear, a lot of you know, unclear thoughts about what emotion was, but a lot of fancy language about how this is the basis of feelings. Um, and I think we really haven't pulled out of that yet. So I think the field needs to really pay attention to the language because the language guides the way you think and do research and draw your conclusions and how you apply it. And I don't think we have a good language right now. My feeling is we don't really yet know a lot about emotions. We know certain things. We know a lot about fear, thanks to Joe. But there are a lot of emotions that we still don't have properly defined. And I think one of the limitations of what you lady there was asking about therapy is that there are things you feel in an interaction and uh, that you can't, uh, you don't know what they are. You just feel something. So there's a lot to be uh, still discovered about emotion. Hi, I'm Goldhaus. I'm studying human-centered computing and with focus on affective computing. And it was a very great talk. Uh, I have a question about uh, like uh, emotion and AI. Uh, we have like embodied metrics, like uh, physiological signs, and like alongside alongside the, like self our self narration of our current emotional state and. Uh, your your uh, talk about guilt makes me think about like sometimes we are not our self narration is not trustable and should computers uh, computers trust the part that is not truth that is not correct like so so the question is should computers trust the trust the part sometimes our self narration is just opposite. Our opposite of our current emotional estate. Totally. I, I do a lot of work these days in technologies to help uh, improve mental health. And we've had a lot of students in our studies. I remember one who uh, had to withdraw from the study and be hospitalized. And I was um, sitting down with the student uh, after the study had ended and going through the data and talking with them about what happened. And the student's data 
each day before they were withdrawn was, I'm fine, I'm doing fine, doing fine, reporting, great, great, doing great. And she said that at the point her roommate insisted that she take her to medical, she was practically catatonic. And yet she was saying that everything was fine. Mm. She was just pushing herself so hard and didn't, like, was not acknowledging what was happening to her. And I've seen this kind of thing happen at MIT on more than one occasion, but this time we had a lot of data associated with it. And so what we've been trying to do is uh, a very multimodal approach. We collect self-reports. We collect, you know, how long does it take you to smile when you see the funniest video or, you know, these kinds of other interactive social type uh, things that we can measure. Uh, we collect a lot of physiology. We collect sleep patterns. We look at long-term rhythms. And actually, from our work in epilepsy and neurology, we've been learning that there are these other long-term patterns from brain implants that we're picking up that help make it even more accurate for us to predict some of the events that are about to happen next. And I think those are going to be important uh, to answer the previous person's question, too. Very excited about the convergence of these, right? The neurology, the physiology, the social, the behavior, like the ability of technology to now put that together and help give us a bit more insight into what's happening with us so that we have more reliable data to trust. Uh, Hormones have a lot to do with emotions, and we don't fully understand all of those. Absolutely, and some of these cool cycles we're seeing actually aren't hormonal, and they're not lunar, and they're not just circadian, you know, and we don't know where they're coming from. They're reliable. Within the study of literature, there's this long existing concept of the unreliable narrator and how you teach that to readers, young readers, so they can understand whether someone's being a a reliable narrator or something. I mean, there's something very helpful in terms of sentiment analysis and the shapes of stories. The arc of the story is agnostic as to what the emotion is. There's no binning, there's no labeling. It just cares about polarity and the intensity. Right. So those seem to be accurate. Once you start binning it as to what the emotion is, there are all kinds of errors. So it seems like we have some kind of reliable signal, but it's at a much more base level. Mm-hmm. And once we do the interpretive function, then we get all kinds of noise. Right. OK. Last question. Thank you all for being here. It's been very interesting. I appreciate it. Um, I'm thinking, you know, music, for example, music generates all kinds of different emotions from the human listener, yet music itself doesn't understand emotion. So how important <laughs> is it to, um, for the computer, the AI, really, to cross that chasm to the holy grail of understanding emotion when it can just generate responses? And... Um, and, and when perfected, let's say there's a billion people in the world that need therapy, and there were only a million therapists, that's not a model that will work, so maybe good enough will be good enough, where if you can have an AI that can, maybe not as good as a one-on-one therapy, but for far more effectively at reaching people all over the globe uh, that don't have access to therapists, that it could be good enough and really help humanity. Thank you. I think I if, it gets more, if it gets more sophisticated, it could do that. You remind me of one of my favorite examples of, you know, we don't have to wait for the definition of emotion to be resolved before we build a computer that can do something useful with it. I like to give the example of the dog that 
uh, I don't know how many people have a dog. Maybe in New York, very few people can have dogs. <laughs> but you come home if you have a dog, and the dog's happy to see you, right? Tail wags, you know, uh, makes you feel so good being happy to be seen. And then the dog notices that dog's owner doesn't look so happy, you know, um, hunched over, whatever. And how does the dog respond? The dog, like, mirrors it, ears back, tail down. And then the owner, like, looks at the dog, kind of mirroring that, and, and feels sort of understood, right? The human feels as if the dog understands them, even though uh, we don't know if the dog understands anything about emotion, right? It may have just learned that if it does these behaviors, it gets fed, it gets petted, you know. Um, but it, so, you know, we don't know that I, probably the dog doesn't have the definitions of emotion, probably it doesn't understand anything, right? Like we're trying to understand, um, but it's very effective. Well, I predict that we'll have a whole stream of people coming into consulting rooms saying, you know, I had a really good time with my robot or my computer, but we got to a point where it just didn't understand me, and it reminded me of my mother. And so <laughs> I had to come seek another source. Right? I'm not worried about the profession at all. <laughs> okay, just one more question, last question. Conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed what I heard. I'm coming from a design background and I appreciate all the work that you guys did. And uh, the collection of you guys discussing about emotion, and uh, it's, it's very fascinating to me. Uh, so, this is going to be my intake on the conversation I heard today, and I'm going to pose two questions for you in general. So, um, am I understood correctly that um, what we're trying to do, at least in this collection to try to formulate the emotion, one of the most unquantifiable facts that we feel with, or we, we face with. Um, is that true? It, because it reminds me of the time that physics and mathematics were developed to, to describe natural phenomena around our world, so it's a kind of language to develop that. And now we're trying to quantify what is one of the most mysterious phenomena for human, which is emotion. And I think we have a consensus here that it's very difficult to formulate it. So this is the first question. The second question is, um, let's say for the sake of argument that we reach to the fact or to the, to the level that we could fully formulate human emotions. What would be the world that you picture that we would live in in the future? Does that mean that we are going to live in a, the most deterministic world ever? Is it good to live in such a world or we need that indeterminacy in our lives? Well, I'll wait in. <laughs> I think on the first question, very broadly, leaving lots of rooms for me to wriggle back on qualifications when people get upset, yes. And on the second question, it depends what it would be to understand the emotions and what they are. You can understand many phenomena theoretically without being able to manipulate concrete instances of the uh, for those phenomena. And there's no reason to think that what anyone here is even aspiring to in their wildest dreams would count as the, the big hack, as it were. So you could, uh, you could ask to understand what an emotion is, what role they play in our lives, how they connect to the neurosystem, all that stuff without thinking, and now I can control other people's emotions. That might still be an entirely separate task, I think. So that's my take. In the emotional brain, I, I wrote some 1996, so I can't be held accountable of the statute of limitations has passed. But I said something like that the cognitive and emotional parts of the brain are not very well connected. 
And my view of emotion now would be very different than when I would say it. But anyway, what I said was that they were not very well connected. But the hope for the human species is that over time we would evolve so there was more connectivity. But we have to also put the brakes on because we don't want to be Dr. Spock. Okay. Mr. Spock, yes. Well, did have emotion. Right. Thank you. He wrote a book. He wrote a book. Okay. <laughs>